0: Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. G'day, afternoon.
1: How are you? Hi, Andrew. Good
0: things. How are
1: you? You're in. she so kept with the grain for the grain. I room. Well, I got feel a like rock.
0: Christmas theme. It is a Christmas theme, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Isn't We're a bit too early. <laughs>
1: Today, interesting day because there's a couple of really big themes that we're doing besides the major thing. We're going to talk about unfair dismissal land and about procedural fairness, how it impacts how you can make decisions strategically where you're not going to act completely lawfully, but you are going to get the exit you need. And there's a sort of case, not a very fair case, I might say, but a case which really demonstrates that. There's a really interesting case around reckless endangerment and a reiteration of what the rules are, what the real tests are and how it's to be looked at. And there's this fascinating review of guidelines around enterprise bargaining, which we could probably swing to straight away, I think. Yeah, we get straight into that. Let's go on to the Target case. Target's an interesting case. This was a major argument that existed between the SDA, which is the union that covers employees of Target and Target, about the meaning of uh, ordinary time. Ordinary
0: time earnings mm, sure. in relation to
1: annual leave. Now, can I just say ordinary times earning is something that people think has a fixed meaning. And so there's this understanding that ordinary times earning is what you get for a 35-hour or 38-hour week without any overtime penalties or anything thrown into it. It's what is the base rate, which is usually your superannuation rate that you work from. Now, can I just say that's homeless rubbish. But yeah. That is a perception that exists throughout throughout the world as to what happens And it's commonly comes to us where people say, so what is the ordinary times earning? And we do just what SDA did, not target. We Mm -hmm. say, well, an enterprise agreement is like any contract. You've got to read the document as a whole. Yeah. And you've got to determine what is the natural meaning of a word. And when you talk about what is the natural meaning of a set of words, it is what is the natural meaning of those words in the context of the agreement as a whole.
0: Yeah, I think the confusion was, Ordering time earnings is defined in the superannuation rules, but the same rule doesn't apply in employment law. And the strict reading of the clause in the enterprise agreement said that it didn't explicitly exclude penalties and shift penalties and things like that. So, Target's argument that they should not apply when someone takes annual leave made no sense. Yeah.
1: So, can I just, I think this is the interesting part that Nina's raised, is there is a temptation to go outside of an agreement to say these words have a special meaning, <laughs> and you find that special meaning in another piece of legislation. Now, there's nothing wrong with that except for this. The words sit inside the agreement and are defined by the agreement. In the absence of that, in, or if it says as in accordance with superannuation of yeah, administration, refers, then you're absolutely fair. fine.
0: But I think the biggest thing from this is Target's main argument was past practice should endorse they were doing the correct approach. Yeah. They'd been applying this since the 1990s, and okay. the court said very definitively, that's not how you are to interpret it.
1: That also goes back to an issue, what is custom and practice? Yeah. So, there is this idea in old IR land that custom and practice is something that existed in your business. That is not true. Custom and practice is an industry custom and practice. It may reach an implied term, so you might be able to say, Look, we've well, done this for a long time and there's an understanding we've paid upon it. It's an implied term. But the risk that Target ran, there's an incredibly dumb argument, is that they're now liable for back pay, which is the crazy thing of running a historical yeah, argument. Yeah. Whereas if they had to just run it on interpretation, there was a much lower level of risk. So, look, a really interesting case, but I think what Nina and I are talking about is we know that lawyers don't draft most enterprise agreements. Mm. We know that they're drafted by lay people. Sometimes they're drafted by lawyers without understanding what's in the rest of the enterprise agreement because they're asked one thing. Can you be aware that the agreement defines the words within an agreement unless you expressly define it externally?
0: Yeah, I think it's a really simple fix. Like, if you have an agreed interpretation of it, just make sure the words actually reflect that. That anyone else who's not in your business were to look at it, they'd say, "Yeah, I agree. That means exactly what you say it means." Yeah. That's the easiest way to avoid.
1: There are so many easy ways to do it. Yeah. Let's go to Astute Earthworks because this is a a, (laughs) this is a case which it's hard to even understand what the regulator was thinking when it ran this case. Because this is one of the cases where a person charged with reckless endangerment got off.
0: Yeah, so the facts are a little bit more convoluted because there were so many parties involved. But essentially it was a demolition of a single-storey building at a vineyard. Two workers were in excavator bucket. Anytime time they mentioned that, you know, it's pretty bad. I know, bad. it's just
1: cringe territory. Yeah,
0: so they lifted the excavator bucket for them to remove some bolts in the roofing and it detached and they fell and one of them got very seriously injured, lucky to be alive, really. And so host employer sorry, principal contractor was charged $180,000 for failure to look at the swims. But the contractor who was supervising the works got charged, fined $618,000. And
1: then there was this the third person, party, yes. Astute Earthworks, who really wasn't involved at all.
0: Except, no. Well, we're not,
1: not quite sure what the relationship, but they well, did come on the side. Because
0: the workers who were injured had previously worked for Astute before and Work. were recommended by astute to greater civil who was the contractor supervising the works. and the workers themselves thought they were employed by astute. So Worksafe kind of relied yeah. on that and said, okay, well you've got a duty to those workers and therefore reckless endangerment and all that and they very easily proved look we don't pay them. We kind of just said, hey, these are good people that you can use, and that was it. They had yeah. no connection. But that's not the
1: big, big no. story. The big story is what the judge said at the end of it in relation to reckless endangerment.
0: And, yeah, he basically said if they had been connected, then well and truly they would have gone down with reckless endangerment. He had come to the site, the director, that day to pick up a ladder or something like that, seen what they were doing and said, this is really unsafe, you need to stop this, got rebuked and then just did nothing else.
1: Okay. okay, so let's, let's talk about reckless endangerment just so nobody misunderstand. Is there a risk of serious injure, injury or yeah, in harm?
0: and he was aware of it.
1: Yes, there is. Mm-hmm. Did he become aware of that risk, yes? Did he? Now, at that stage, you've got an awareness of serious injury. So the next question is recklessness. That is, was he indifferent to the nature of that risk? And here he actually said, and let's just assume for this purpose he was actually the employer, he said, look, don't do that. That's incredibly dangerous, but did nothing more. Now, that is indifference, okay? And the courts
0: made that very clear. Yeah, so the
1: courts used an example of had you been the employer, you would have had to stop the work. You would have had to bring the workers down. Merely saying don't do it doesn't move you away from being reckless. So, look, I thought really good case. Great to see someone win against the regulator, but that's probably...
0: I think it just goes to show that there's less and less that courts are willing to give up and to meet that threshold. It's very easy now, so yeah. be careful. Well,
1: let's go to Power and Lyndon because that's the next case, I think, that we've got.
0: Yeah, the swearing one.
1: The swearing case. Well, interesting case. I'm not going to use the language because it's pretty bad. Yeah. Needless to say, it's sexualised in nature and abusive.
0: Yeah, so it was, it was a lot of very abusive swearing language directed at an employee. They wrote written complaint, investigation, termination. But the employee tried to say, look, swearing is so commonplace in our workplace and it's condoned, so I shouldn't be terminated and it's harsh.
1: Okay, so let's stop there. So you've heard from me too often my phrase, the doctrine (laughs) of condemnation, it actually is one, it's not one I'm made up, which said you can't punish what you permit. Yeah. But remember, swearing has different levels. I mean, occasionally in our office we we drop a few magic words, (laughs) but that's not directed to harm or hurt.
0: Yeah, and it's not abuse.
1: Um, nor is it sexual in nature, yeah. nor is it directed towards sexualised behaviour. Remember, mm-hmm. sexual harassment can be between two men. Yeah, so it can be them to them. say, "You don't you just go and do this to me, which is what this yeah. guy was saying. It doesn't have to be the sort of classical stereotypical one mm-hmm. of a man making sexualised comments to a woman for the purpose of inducing a relationship. That's mm-hmm. one style of sexual
0: And sex. it doesn't have to be directed either. Like if you were saying that to someone else and I heard it, I could still be offended and that would still be sexual harassment.
1: Yeah. All right, so what happened? He's terminated. I know he's yeah. terminated, but he, <laughs> hit, he then went to court. So. <laughs> oh, right, Come crazy. on, stay yeah. with me, Nina. Like, it's been a long day
0: already. Yeah, so he, he lost because they said, look, although it was condoned within the workplace, his actions amounted to sexual harassment and it was clear serious misconduct and there was procedural fairness and all that. Yeah. So there was clearly a valid reason.
1: Yeah. So what my point about this is don't think sexual harassment is a man providing sexualised jokes to a woman in the hope of inducing her into a sexual relationship. That is one form of sexual harassment can be made by any sexually based comment towards a person. Yeah. Um, harassment suggests a repeated nature of doing it, yeah. that harms, hurts or humiliates yeah. and is not consented to.
0: Yeah. And don't forget this Kind of behaviour would be considered psychological hazards as well. That's right. So you have a positive duty under safety legislation to put a stop to it anyway.
1: And you've also got a positive duty under the new respect of work mm-hmm. to stop a hostile workplace. Yes. And can I just say that steps back into the arena of constant swearing in work. So if that type of swearing at work, if the nature of language at work created a risk for a woman who could be offended by it, and there's a number of words which I can think of immediately, which would do that, then you've got a hostile workplace, you've got an obligation, a positive duty to prevent it. So Lynn's case is a fascinating case because what it does do is it talks about the old law, but it really introduces you to how the new law will apply. I'm looking at this because you can imagine I'm not very good at remembering things, and I've also turned the page backwards. So why don't we go to Brighton-Turner-Civil? Is that the next one?
0: No, it's the Genuine Principles. <laughs>
1: okay, the Genuine Principles were great.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Um Uncomplicated, okay? In fact, the primary ones are identical. You must notify Union... You must go through and explain what's in the document. They're all the things that currently exist.
0: Yeah, sorry, and just just take a step back. So this You're is a, a statement. Stuff, <laughs> this is a statement that the Fair Work Commission has released in order to help employers and employees understand what it means to genuinely agree to an education.
1: So you are trying to help the viewers? Yeah. yeah. And, that, and what she says is right, can I just say. And, and I've just jumped ahead because I was on the wrong page. So this is what's been released. You remember the President said this was going to be released. You remember the consultation period in, I think, 5 May or something like that. Yeah, something I'm like that. I'm making numbers up. <laughs> I think that's right. And both Nina and I and then Matt and I both talked about this and said, look, it'd be interesting to see where it goes. It's hard to see where it could go beyond where the current case law is at, yeah. and it's the current case law that was the major part in the other matters discussion.
0: Yeah, that's the more interesting part for sure. Yeah, and
1: look, let's have a look at a couple of them. So if I'm trying to get around this problem, my old industrial hat would have been I would have got a couple of friendly people who I would have paid more than what they would have gone in the enterprise agreement. They would have held one or two of the classifications. We would have looked at it at a commissioning stage for Greenfields so that at an early stage before we had to employ other people, we'd look at it doing there. And they'd all vote it up and they'd say it was great. Yeah. And that used to work. And then there's been a series of cases which say things like, look, you do need people representative of the classifications.
0: And people who are employees voting for it. Yeah,
1: people who are employees. Yeah. And that they are reflective of the nature of the enterprise agreement when they're voting on it. They're not people who have other forms of inducement. Yeah. Nothing surprising about all of that because the case law is definitely there. What's really good with the new president is they've stepped back and said, yeah, let's not leave this confusing, let's leave it really clear. The old artificial methods of getting an enterprise agreement up, rebuffing a union's involvement by those four or five workers going, we don't want you here, Mm -hmm. all those sort of things that used to happen before are no longer lawful. I don't think there's anything particularly new in it. What there is is great clarity and I think it's to be
0: encouraged. Yeah, and look, they haven't said anything further about how they're going to weight the different factors or anything like that, but it's helpful to employers to know what are considerations.
1: right, Nina, you'll tell us what's coming up next because I've got lost, okay?
0: (laughs) The next one is the threat of violence. Oh, yeah, so this one was (laughs) such a weird case. So I'll go through the facts. Can we just
1: say, one thing I want to say at the beginning of this, Nina's going to go through the facts and you'll think it's a slightly perverse judgment. But there is something we want to draw out at the bottom, so listen carefully yeah. to facts.
0: Mr. Bright was an employee who'd been involved in three altercations with another employee, and it had all been instigated by the other employee. Well, I say
1: when I heard Mr. Bright, I thought it was something <laughs> from the killers, but anyway. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <Yeah.
0: laughs> yeah, so it was always the other employee who was trying to fight with him, and he'd reach out to his supervisor and said, Look, please, you need to help me, you need to stop this, and they basically did nothing. Then it reached a point where the other employee tried to fight with him again. And he he called his supervisor and said, look, I really can't do this anymore. And the supervisor said, look, please don't resign. We'll try to do something, please. And he said, no, I'm done. And the next day, he put in his resignation with two weeks notice. All seems fine, right? Then he has a conversation with the supervisor and says, look, I don't know why he didn't do anything to help me. I don't know. Did you want me to fight him? And then the supervisor alleges he threatened to put the other employee in hospital, doesn't give him a chance to respond and terminates him immediately.
1: <laughs> well, there you go. If ever there was a good adverse action, can I just say yeah. that this wasn't.
0: Yeah, and I will say that, look, after he was terminated, he did write some pretty vile things to the supervisor and to the owner of the business. So he's not completely without clean hands.
1: And nor but, would he ever be reinstated. Yeah.
0: So before that's why he couldn't be reinstated. But... Just a bizarre set of facts because why didn't they didn't, They never put investigated, they never asked him what he meant, didn't say anything. Just and and he, raised the safety,
1: he raised the safety concern, yeah. and for this unfortunate character, because
0: well, he was going to leave in two weeks anyway. Yeah, but
1: for him, in a way, you know, it's a pity he didn't oh. get some decent advice. He would have had a beautiful adverse action, yeah. he would have had a great general damages claim, yeah, sitting in the middle of it. His claim was probably worth 70 to 80 to 100 thousand dollars, but he made the mistake of filing an unfair dismissal he would already resigned and you got $2,800, yeah, which when you worked about 18 months in the business is roundabout where you land. And it comes to our discussion today mm-hmm. around, look, what do I deal with, do with someone if I know they no longer fit in the business? Don't forget about the facts for a second. I'm not sure I've got enough to terminate because they might have a claim, but they've done enough things which make it impossible to reinstate the person, okay? Now, all of us have had employees from time to time who fall within that category, and the answer is, longevity of employment is a key measure of what is the compensation that's going to be ordered and the level of seriousness also reflects on it sometimes you can make a decision which says look i'm going to terminate it first i'm going to terminate them on notice not summarily which gives you a bit of buy-in i recognize there's a level of risk but i'm willing to pay six to eight weeks he's only been he or she's only been here 12 months actually you're pretty safe to do it okay so what I'm trying to do is calibrate how you make decisions because sometimes keeping a difficult person in the business, waiting for them to do the thing you need to do to terminate cleanly is so dangerous for that business to do it that you've got to make a bit of an early choice. You've got to pull the lever yeah, and know it there's can a risk. cause harm
0: to others as well. Yeah,
1: so what was happening in this case coming back to the case is there's clearly more to this case than came out in the evidence yeah. and clearly Mr Brightside Sorry, I just couldn't <laughs> put into the killers. There's probably other issues that we're not aware of. What we do know is the business knew that this was an unfixable problem. Now, clearly, they should have investigated and it probably wasn't this guy who was the problem, but it doesn't make any difference. Getting him out of the business was probably a safe course. You can do that. I want you to understand you can do it, but you've got to plan what the cost is. Doing it in this way and exposing to an adverse action claim, it was a terrible way because yeah. rightly advised, this person had a very, very substantial claim against the business. Done in a better way sometime before, where you investigate, you find the faulters with both people, you give them both warnings, and you say, I think it's time to exit both, yeah. would have been an incredibly safe way because neither of them could have come back. But yeah, you'd be you'd be settling a conciliation. Anyway, look, yeah. we've spent a long time on it, but it's a issue Is I want to get. Case? What's our next case
0: now? Last case about late hires, yeah. right? <laughs> So, I think this is like a common thing we see. Labour hire provider gets an instruction by the host employer and, and goes
1: with it. This is the, the alleged stealing. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's pretty funny though. So, <laughs> the employee was found with two tools in his bag in a routine airport inspection, and the host employer investigated and said, Look, that's attempted stealing, that's it, you're off our site forever. And the labour hire provider looked at the investigation report and said, yep, agree with all that, you're fired." Didn't tell them the reason why, didn't give him a chance to respond, didn't investigate themselves and just, you know, didn't choose to relocate it to another site, yeah. nothing. And he just, said, Immediately it's, he just said it's
1: inadvertence, but I really throw my job for two tools worth yeah. less than 100 dollars. He was like,
0: days. I forgot about it anymore. <laughs>
1: Now, look, may or may may not have been true, but in this case you are going to get reinstatement and you are going to get compensation. And the reason is because there is a plausible reason and if you don't ask the person and they give you a plausible reason, then there's no basis upon which you can properly terminate. Now, it's different than seeing someone commit an act of violence, okay, because you've got the evidence there and then. It's different than having someone scream abuse. You've got the action in front of you. Here you don't and so you must independently ascertain what is the truth yeah and remember stealing is a serious matter okay therefore brig and shore test comes in so you've got to have independent solid and reliable evidence to turn. the fact that a person is caught with tools leaving a site is in itself an acknowledgement the person does have them but you've got to ask the question why
0: yeah and look we understand there might be constraints because you're not the one on site so you can't do a the same investigation as the host employer. But your obligations under law mean you have to do some kind of investigation, which would have meant at a minimum putting the allegation to the employee.
1: Okay. We're gonna go for discrimination. We're gonna talk very briefly about it. It is the major theme for today. The Richardson Oracle was a case of a woman, a quite senior woman in an organization who what Nina and I would describe as lawyers was involved in a non touch sexual harassment. It was innuendo, it was commentary, it was invitations for dates.
0: But it was repeated and incessant. Yeah. And
1: it was un- all unwelcome, yeah. all not wanted. It damaged the woman psychologically at first instance. She received the top of the non touch sexual harassment awards that we've been given, which at those days we call that a tariff, was around about $14,000. She wasn't entitled to receive economic loss because the test adopted by the child judges her resignation and going to a lower job was a choice. She made it. Yeah. It wasn't the sole reason wasn't what occurred. The Court of Appeal said, actually, we're going to attach damages or compensation for these things to the level of common law, and they increased it to $100,000. And I want you to remember that number because I want to come back to it. And
0: That was a long time ago. And,
1: yeah, 2014. Yeah. And secondly, that we all know that things don't have to be the sole test, but if it's the substantial reason behind it, it is sufficient. So economic loss was also ordered, which was very significant. The importance of this is now in sexual harassment cases for non-touch harassment, when harassment is more than a once-off type of thing, you're sort of starting at a bottom of around about $20,000 yeah. general damages. That's damage for pain, suffering, loss of men, the hurt you feel, in other words. Mm-hmm. But it's up to around about one hundred twenty dollars to $150,000 for touch-based sexual harassment it goes up from there and there's been cases where general damages have been as high as 300 dollars $400,000 and that economic loss is now being ordered like the common law. Yep. And what we're talking about today is, which was the second case, which is like... The one from
0: last week, like Gutierrez. Gutierrez,
1: that is now being extended beyond sexual harassment to other protected attributes. Yes, like age. this one, Like this one, Jage. it could be disability, it could be all those things. So what I want you to understand is now as the common law tariff is going up, so are the discrimination and harassment tariffs. And that includes some one-off discrimination Mm -hmm. or repeated harassment. And therefore, these claims are now in the hundreds of thousand dollars north of a million if it includes economic loss, with a reverse onus from effectively that sits there because it is a prohibited sexual harassment, sexual discrimination, hostile workplace. With a positive duty to prevent it, then the punitive damages part is also going to increase and the punitive damages hasn't moved greatly. But now you're told you mustn't do it, okay, so it's prohibited. You've got a positive duty. If you don't do the things, not only are you going to get general damages, you're going to get punitive damage and that goes straight to reputation.
0: And it's just easier now to file these claims than it was back in 2014 with the hostile okay, we better
1: go to the problem, haven't we? We're yeah. going to jump in. Sorry, that was going to be a 10-minute thing, but we waxed on about other All stuff. right.
0: Mac was a maintenance fitter. He was known to be rough around the edges. His manager, Paul, had heard him swear, become angry, and knew that the young apprentices were scared of him. There were three apprentices, two male and one female apprentice, Die. Mac had a wife, Janine and Mac had a difficult relationship marked by loud and rude exchanges when they were upset. Everyone heard them in the maintenance era. It was a common feature of morning tea smoker with Mac shouting down his phone and Janine shouting so loud back that she could be heard as well. The calls included sexual remarks and disparagement of him as a male and her as a female. Paul had time to stop, but when Janine rang and raged him, he raged back. On the day in question, Janine rang at smoker time. She was angry as he had accidentally taken her car keys with him. She needed them to get the kids to school. They lived a block from the factory. Mac told her to drop by and she a She said it was his fault and he had to bring them home. She called him a dumb idiot. The language (laughs) and the volume got worse and eventually Dice started to cry and put her hands over her ears. Mac looked at her and shouted, Stop your baby crying, you stupid dumb. Di ran from the shed, so distressed. She didn't see a truck entering the yard and was struck and killed. Paul spoke to him up through the incident. He explained that he'd been present and it was serious misconduct. Mac was still distressed by what had happened. In fact, he was overwhelmed. He cared a lot about Di. Although she hated his language, they worked well together. He couldn't respond to Paul. He just said, mate, I'm stuffed. Can you give me a day? I can't think or talk. Paul summarily dismissed him. Di had suffered depression and PTSD from a violent father. The psychologist said it was likely the loudness and abusive nature of the call had distressed her not Mac himself. She had confided in the psychologist saying she felt safe with Mac no matter how rough he was. After he was terminated, Mac explained to WorkSafe that he was yelling at his wife, who started putting on her usual alligator tears and looking to die for support and to give him some comfort. He was devastated by what happened.
1: Okay, I think alligator tears is crocodile tears. That's just me never being allowed to use those things when I was a kid and mucking up oh. when I'm an adult. Okay, so the first question is, could Mac successfully claim he was unfairly dismissed? Oh
0: uh, Well, yeah, I think The valid reason we'd have is the fact that sexual harassment, bullying, exposure, hostile workplace, but there was no procedural fairness.
1: Yeah, well, not only that, he'd had all that behaviour and there'd been a condemnation throughout of it. So I think the most important part of this is he wasn't given an ability to explain what happened. Mm -hmm. It would be a line ball. He may or may not succeed. Who knows? But I don't want you to think... It wouldn't be without merits. That's all I wanted to put up there. Okay. The next question is: Was Max vulgar, rude, and abusive language capable of being described as sexual harassment and bullying?
0: Yes. It didn't have to be targeted. It just had to be like exposure to it, and a reasonable person in that situation could have felt belittled and uncomfortable and yeah. offensive and all that. So look,
1: can you see the difference? And that we this is why we're using this problem today is to expose leading case all those cases and say, well, what is it? Because it's serious. Yeah. And now with the duties that exist under new legislation, it's incredibly serious, OK?
0: And I think the key thing is it's so easy for it to come up. Like, it's not going to be the like the very serious examples you see, like you said, the touch examples. But I bet you this kind of behaviour is happening in workplaces all around and employees are saying, well, i told them to stop, that should be enough. What we're saying is that is not enough. No. And, and what we're
1: also seeing immediately after the change in legislation is change in plaintiff law firm behaviour to mm-hmm. identifying these behaviour, yeah. where condemnation is seen as a, a very substantial breed of duty yep. to employees. Yep. So that brings us to the next question. Did Paul's failure to stop Mac create hostile workplace? And the Undeaded question is unquestionably. Yeah. So remember, hostile workplace will be used as something pleaded in a claim about an individual breach. Yeah. You sexually harass me in this way and you did nothing beforehand and it was already a hostile workplace. What that does is two things. It puts up punitive damages. Yeah. Okay. It pushes them through the roof and it pushes up general damages. Yeah. So and it creates an atmosphere which show you had no proper safe system of work in place and that you were careless and respected people. So as I said, I want you to be aware that that's what this is about. Let's go to the next question.
0: Yeah, so OHS laws, yes, because of breach of... So i better
1: read that. Now. Could Mac, Paul and the business be charged with OHS breaches of OHS laws? And If so, what would they be? Yes,
0: yeah, so primary duty breaches, and including under Section 25 against other employees, and also
1: reckless yeah, engagement. Yeah, so I, I think at the moment, I think Paul's in a real bit of strife. He's a person who's permitted this to go. Yeah. He's been aware of it.
0: He's been indifferent to
1: it. Yeah, and the business, unquestionably, would be liable. So definitely primary duty, the death... Although it appears incidental is not a part of any of those charges, but there's a matter that goes towards aggravation and damages. Yeah. So I think that the business would be looking at a, a fine greater than five hundred thousand dollars.
0: Yeah. Definitely.
1: Okay. Could Max successfully bring a workers' comp client?
0: Yeah, this one is interesting because I feel like it's definitely something that's come out of work. But yeah, I don't know. Okay, so interesting question.
1: So he's been terminated, that doesn't prevent him putting in a workers' comp client. No. Step one. Two it's devastated him. It's something yeah. he never intended to do. It arose out of work. For it, yeah.
0: yeah.
1: And he wasn't grossly grossly it's not negligence, I've got the words that he used in this, but he's he's mis misgra- it wasn't gross misconduct because yeah. it was conduct which was permitted. So the answer is I think his claim would be successful. It would be one which is devastating to the business because yeah. they'd go, Well, what do I do with it? But the answer is the business was the author of it. Mm. That's why like, When you let this behaviour go, you are gonna win now, he's never gonna come back to work. He can never come back to work because of the nature of what occurred. So his claims, say the business had, you know, five million REM and we know that it was a manufacturing-based business. Their premium is probably already five to six hundred thousand dollars. This is a six hundred to seven hundred thousand dollar premium hit. Yeah. Okay, uh-huh. so it's major. Now, if the CEO was aware of Dyer's vulnerability and Max repeated bad behaviour, could he be prosecuted for industrial manslaughter? Yes. So the answer is yes. Well, let's talk of things. That was good. <laughs> well, We'd you like can offer yeah, that. Was there a breach of duty? Yes. yes. Was it a gross breach of duty, knowing the level of risk? Yes. Yes. Did it result in someone's death? Yes. Yes. Okay. Industrial manslaughter. Now, guys, I've got to tell yes. you, that's time for tonight. Thanks very much.
0: Right, thank you, And
1: then. thank you very much. We need a thumbs up. Can yes. we have that? See you later, guys. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye.